Hi everyone, welcome back to Jew I Don't Know, episode number 15. I'm your host, Jason Harris. With Abraham and Sarah now behind us, we turn to Isaac, the second Jewish patriarch. Isaac is kind of the John Adams of the patriarchs. When you're sandwiched in between the heavyweights like Washington and Jefferson, or in this case, Abraham and Jacob, you tend to get overlooked, or at least underappreciated. And indeed, Isaac is the patriarch whom we know the least about. He's basically famous for two things, almost getting sacrificed by Abraham, and later on getting deceived by his son Jacob into giving him the inheritance. But still, like John Adams, Isaac's got his cool factoids. He's the only patriarch not to get renamed. Abram became Abraham and Jacob will become Israel, but Isaac stays Isaac. He's also the only patriarch to never leave the land of Canaan, and he lives the longest. So let's get into Isaac, and we'll try to condense it into less than the 800-page book on John Adams that I have. Welcome back to Jew I Don't Know. I would say to young people that we can do everyone our share to redeem the world. So we already covered Isaac, the early years, from the story around his birth to the Akedah, his binding or near sacrifice by Abraham. Interestingly, it's not clear how old he was when the Akedah occurred. The assumption is that he was a child, or at least that's how he's often depicted in art, but some biblical commentators, doing the math on all the various ages and clues given in the Bible, suggest that he may have been in his 30s. This is why I don't go anywhere with my parents unless another sibling joins us, because I'm just living the Torah here. Anyway, in between the Akedah and the story of Esau and Jacob is the story about how Isaac got his wife. Isaac actually only plays an incidental role in this story, so really I fooled you a little into thinking that this episode was going to be primarily about Isaac. It's actually mostly about two people, Abraham's servant and a woman named Rebecca. By the way, Apropos of nothing, that last 30-second chunk took like six takes. I kept saying biblical commentators wrong. Anyway, glad it's over with. We can move on. We begin the story with a suggestion that for Abraham, he believes that death is near. He's actually going to continue living several more decades, but Sarah has just died, and the Torah says that Abraham, old and stricken, calls over his most senior servant to swear an oath to Abraham. In doing so, Abraham insists that the servant place his hand under Abraham's thigh, which seems to be a reference to Abraham's groin, apparently with the implication that if the servant is going to screw up his mission now, he, the servant, will suffer a loss to his own groin. For you etymologists out there, consider that the words testify and testimony have testes as their root. Hmm... Anyway, Abraham charges his servant, by the way, we never are told the name of the servant, but Abraham charges him with finding a wife for Isaac. But there's a catch. The servant has to swear that the woman will not be a local Canaanite, but instead will be someone from Abraham's original home and from his original people, back in Babylon or Samaria. Here we have one of the earliest prohibitions against intermarriage. And before you get all riled up at me about intermarriage, there's actually a good reason for it, at least in this case. In Abraham's defense, he's supposed to father a separate nation of people with a distinct identity and destiny from the surrounding Canaanites. So if he ends up marrying his son to a local, well, that's going to put the entire genealogical project in jeopardy. Remember, Abraham is claiming this land by divine promise. 
So it wouldn't work to have people saying we simply inherited the land from Isaac's wife. So yeah, filter your profiles, friends. No Canaanites. The servant says, okay, I get this, but let's say I meet a nice Babylonian girl and she refuses to come with me. Do I have to come all the way back here, get Isaac, and then bring him back again to your homeland to be with this girl? To which Abraham says, no way, absolutely not. And he lectures the servant that God didn't bring him out from his home, make him travel all the way to Canaan, and promise him the land just to send his son all the way back to the home country. It's like the BART tunnel between Oakland and San Francisco. It seems that Babylon, like the East Bay, is too far to contemplate going just to get a wife. Sufficiently hamstrung by Abraham's rules and having again grabbed Abraham by the President Trump, the servant sets out with ten camels and other riches and begins the journey to find Isaac a wife. Arriving at the city of Aram along the Euphrates River, the servant asks about where the nice girls hang out and duly makes for the local watering hole as the sun goes down. Some things don't change. Echoing the rituals of men everywhere, he asked God to please send along a young maiden and even recited to God exactly how he wanted the conversation to go, kind of like me in the shower before a date, including what she would say to his pickup line, which for the record was, please, lower your jar that I may drink. Yeah, I've tried it. It doesn't work anymore. And just at that very moment came along a woman named Rebecca. Rebecca is actually Abraham's grandniece, the daughter of his nephew, and the Bible says she is beautiful and a virgin. But more importantly than that, she is kind and generous. For not only does she allow the servant to drink water from her jar, but she also offers water to his ten camels. Considering that she had to physically pull the water up from the well, this was no small gesture. Unsure if this is the girl that God is sending, the servant nevertheless offers Rebecca a gold nose ring and two gold bracelets partly to thank her for her efforts and partly to impress her. He asks her if he can stay the night with her family and she brings him home. And at her home, we meet her brother, Laban, who will later play a major role in finding a wife for Isaac and Rebecca's future son, Jacob. Laban offered the servant dinner, but the servant refused to eat until he told the whole story about Abraham getting blessed by God, Sarah giving birth to Isaac, and then the whole business from Abraham about not marrying a Canaanite, but also not allowing Isaac to go there, and that the servant will be cursed if he doesn't complete his mission, and how he met Rebekah, and on and on until we have the single longest story of the book of Genesis. Seriously, this story about finding Rebecca goes on longer than the story of creation, or Adam and Eve, or Noah and the Flood, or any single story about Abraham or anyone else in Genesis. Like my podcast listeners, Laban and his wife were desperate to stop this never-ending story. So they agree that Rebecca can go back with the servant to Canaan. After all, they say, it's God's will, what can we do? But they insist that Rebecca stay with them another 10 days. But after arguing with the servant about it, they bring Rebecca in to let her decide. Will you go with this man now, they ask, and she says, I will. If you are hearing echoes of Lech Lecha here, God telling Abraham to go forth from his native land to Canaan, you're not wrong. What I find so interesting about this part of the story is how it is setting Rebecca up as the natural successor to Abraham. Not only does Rebecca go forth from her native land like Abraham, but other events in her life mirror his. Remember when Abraham generously greeted the three men who came to his tent? Sounds like Rebecca greeting the servant with water for both him and his camels. 
and after she agrees to go to Canaan with the servant, her family blesses her with a song that uses identical language to the blessing that God gave Abraham after almost sacrificing Isaac. Basically, that her offspring will become huge in number and defeat their enemies. In all this, the biblical writers are making Rebecca seem like the proactive doer who is going to carry forth God's covenant. It's not really Isaac. He is a pretty passive character. Things happen to him rather than him making things happen. But it's the opposite case with Rebecca. The Torah emphasizes her kindness and generosity, but it also has her acting decisively and with conviction, as with her decision to immediately go to Canaan with the servant rather than wait the extra 10 days like her family wants. Rebecca is now the second matriarch, along with Sarah, for whom we get a real view into her biography, personality, and emotional life. Sure, the Torah tells us that she's beautiful, but the writers emphasize that it is her kindness and generosity that makes Abraham's servant believe that she's the one God intends for Isaac. Think about that the next time you swipe on J-Date. Coming so soon after Sarah's death, the Torah is presenting us with a continued line of female influence in the affairs of this new people that rise from God's covenant with Abraham. When Sarah dies, it's imperative that a new female character immediately appear, since it is through these women that the matriarchy, and thus the early lineage of the Jewish people, is established. And although Rebecca inherits the legacy of Sarah, the emphasis on her kindness and generosity sets her apart. Sarah was a lot of things, but kind wasn't always one of them. Think of her demanding that Abraham throw Hagar and Ishmael out into the wilderness. In other words, Genesis is perhaps adding in some necessary emotional quotient to the flawed human beings presented as the Jewish patriarchs and matriarchs. So, we have a new character, Rebecca, about whom we know is kind, generous, decisive, and unafraid to seize her destiny. Rebecca is clearly a complete person in her own right, and I would argue is the one who is now going to continue Abraham's work to create a new nation. Isaac and Rebecca first meet in a scene like from a movie. Isaac went out walking in a field one evening and, looking up into the fading light, sees camels approaching. Nothing says romance like camels approaching. At the same time, Rebecca raises her eyes and sees Isaac. She asks the servant who he is, and upon hearing that it is her intended, covers herself with a veil. Isaac brings her into the family's tent, takes her as his wife, falls in love with her, and finds in her arms the comfort he needed after Sarah's death. Next episode. Not content with the past of Isaac, Rebecca takes the Jewish line of succession, such as it is, into her own hands, favoring her younger son over the older one. It's just like how on Passover my younger brother always seems to get one of those comfy upholstered chairs while I get one of those fold-up chairs that you pull out from the basement. You older siblings know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Anyway, talk to you all next time. Thanks for listening. Oh,